for a church gathering, uh, for our annual general assembly. And it was in a, it was in a big complex downtown, and it had multiple levels to it. Uh, and some, some of the activities were on one level, and some of the activities were on another level, and you had to go down an escalator to get out the building, and from the main floor where most of us were most of the time. And anyway, it was a big, big place. And I mentioned escalators because uh, you know what an escalator is. It's those stairs that move, right? You, you hop on and it takes you up or takes you down from one floor to another. Well, I was watching, I was going, let's see, I was going down an escalator with a whole bunch of men that had just gotten out of this conference. And we had to go down stairs to go out of the building. And most of us were, I think, were going to dinner at that point in time. And so a whole bunch of people are going down and the escalator was crowded with people. And it was just really, and, and there was a big line kind of waiting to get on the escalator. Well, this young, I looked and I saw this young man, he had to be young. But this young man who kind of walked past me to the escalator that was coming up. There was nobody on the escalator that was coming up from the bottom floor up to the floor where we were. Well, he walked over to that escalator and started bounding down the up escalator. And sure enough, he made it. He, he, it was quite the task, but he did it. He overcame the up escalator's effort to get him up and he proceeded down and he got ahead of everybody and got out to his car wherever he was going. Um, but, if that man, young man, had jumped on that escalator and jumped a few steps down and then stopped, what would have happened to him? It would, you're right. It would bring him back up. He would be going backwards, wouldn't he? And he wouldn't make it to the bottom floor if he didn't keep on going down when the escalator was trying to make him go up, right? Keep that in mind, that imagery, okay? Because that imagery is really helpful for the Christian life. We as Christians, when we come to Jesus and come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we embark on a journey um, that uh, is not supposed to cease to heaven. And it won't cease if we're true Christians. If we're true Christians, we will continue on in faith um, sometimes it's hard, sometimes that faith is shaken, but we will continue on trusting in Jesus and trying to obey Jesus and, and God uh, throughout our life. And we won't stop until we get to heaven. But there are lots of things working against us. The three main ones that the Bible talks about are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world and the flesh and the devil are kind of like that up escalator pushing us, trying to push us back. And we are required as Christians to keep overcoming that up escalator that's trying to push us back of sin and the world and, and the devil. And we are to keep pushing forward. And we can't stop. Or something really bad is going to happen. And that's what this passage is about. It's a sobering passage. It's not my favorite passage to preach on, frankly. But it's something that we need to hear about. 
and be reminded about that we, lest we become uh, indifferent about our journey of faith um, and our walk with Christ. So, in the previous sermon, uh, and I read read it uh, that the uh, the text for the previous sermon, which was chapter five, verses eleven through chapter six, verse uh, four, verse three, rather. Uh, in that previous sermon text, we learned and we see there that in spite of the internal and external pressures that are on a Christian to do so, we must not allow ourselves to atrophy spiritually, which is another way of saying standing still on the down escalator and letting it take us back. Uh, we are need of deliberately and continually trusting the Lord to grow us, to move us forward spiritually. It's necessary that we keep moving, if you will. Now, in today's text, in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, this follows on that previous discussion, and the writer here sets forth one of the most urgent reasons why it is so important, so in fact necessary, for professing Christians, like ourselves, to continually trust and actively trust in God to bring us to greater levels of obedience and maturity. And the word for, in verse 4, indicates that that's what's going on. He's saying, this is the reason, or this is why it's so important that you continue to press on, that you continue to make forward progress in the Christian faith. He says, for, and then he launches into this discussion of those who were once enlightened and who had tasted of the heavenly gift and who had been partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, but something very bad happened to them. He essentially is saying there in verse 4, if you don't actively trust God and... and um, actively trust God to continue to grow you spiritually, you may end up regressing like that guy on the escalator who stops on the on the up escalator. You may end up regressing spiritually to the point of becoming a full-blown apostate, which is to say, clearly a non-Christian. This passage that we have before us here, these four or five verses, Three things we're going to look at in the remainder of our time. First of all, we're going to see a description of apostasy. Secondly, we're going to discuss the horror of apostasy. And finally, we're going to look at the evidence of apostasy. First, the description of apostasy. This is in verses 4 through 6a. Let me read it again. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. And then he goes on. I won't, I won't go on at that point. But this is uh, a description of apostasy. This word falling away um, is uh, the word apostasy comes from the Greek word, which is to fall away. That's what the, where the English word apostasy comes from. Uh, and that's what that's describing there in verse 6. Now, what is apostasy, biblically speaking? Well, there are three main views regarding what apostasy is. One of them clearly isn't biblical, which is the first one I'm going to give you. 
And I'll tell you why it's not biblical. The second one is possible. The third one, I think, is the most preferable way of understanding this passage. But there are three different um, common um, positions taken uh, by, uh, fairly common positions taken by evangelicals regarding the meaning of this concept of falling away or apostatizing. Apostatizing, excuse me. First is this. And that is that it is describing, the writer is, and the Holy Spirit is describing this, an individual who at one point in his or her life possessed true saving or justifying, I'd prefer to use the word justifying faith, in Jesus Christ. Um, but who at some point doesn't. Down the road. Those who adopt this interpretation that uh, an apostate is somebody who once possessed true um, saving faith or justifying faith but no longer does, those who adopt that interpretation do so on account of the vividness of the wording that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe these apostates. Again, it's pretty vivid. They have been enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have been partakers of the Holy Spirit, and so on. It's pretty strong language, is it not? Right? And people, uh, uh, a lot of evangelicals, sad to say, draw the wrong conclusion from that strong language. Uh, they, they, they say that once enlightened means the person had a regenerate heart. They were born again. They were once enlightened. Born again. That's what they say. Um, and the rest of the phrases similarly mean that as well. This person was clearly a Christian, a genuine Christian. How could he not be if he's a partaker of the Holy Spirit? How could he not be if he's uh, uh, had been once enlightened and so on? And the heavenly gift, he tasted of the heavenly gift. Proponents of this view include uh, a godly man um, who was the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. He was a godly man, but he wasn't right in some areas, some major areas, one of which was this one. But let me read you something here. I have to find it. It says, this quote is from a commentary that Rick Phillips wrote on on the... uh, on Hebrews, He says, John Wesley, the great Methodist leader, uh, made much of these verses, writing, quote, much, uh, Must not every unprejudiced person see? The expressions here used are so strong and clear that they cannot, without gross and palpable wrestling, be understood of any but true believers. So he says they're talking about true believers. People, um, and then and then Phillips says, people who hold this interpretation cite these verses as a key proof against the assurance of salvation or eternal security. Wesley was typical of many others when he wrote, on this authority, meaning this passage, I believe a saint may fall away that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. Mr. Wesley. 
This position, folks, is untenable. Wesley's position, the, the common Arminian position, is untenable biblically in, in light of the biblical's Bible's teaching elsewhere. I'll just cite two places, and more could be brought to bear, but uh, two places, one of it is, which is Romans 8. Look with me at Romans. Actually, let's, let's go to the John. John 10.10, 10, or John 10.28 first. Let's do that one first. John 10.28 I'll back up to verse 27. This is where Jesus is talking about, he's been talking about uh, himself being the shepherd and uh, talks about the sheep. And he says, he says the uh, religious leaders who are confronting him and challenging him are not his sheep. Verse 26 and then verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then here's the key to uh, two verses, 28 and 29. And I, give eternal life to them. Notice, it's given by Christ. I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And then he says, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. I gave, in other words, I'm the one who gave them life, and nobody's going to take that away from them because I gave it to them. Right? Nobody, they're not going to perish. They shall never perish. Anybody to whom I've given eternal life to, by the way, <clears throat> eternal life is eternal. Once it begins, it can't, by definition, be taken away. That's another reason. It's, and it starts the moment you're born again. It's eternal. Boom, that's it. Okay? In addition to the fact that he says they shall never perish, and the fact that he says no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Oh, and just to make the point, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Pretty clear, would you not say? Turn over to Romans 8 as well. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Well-known verse here, Romans eight twenty-eight. Most of us know that. Uh, by heart, probably. But what follows is particularly important to our subject at hand here. Eight twenty-eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he says this, For whom he, that is God, foreknew or foreloved, I believe that's best understood to mean, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that is to be sanctified, that he might be the firstborn, the son might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called, he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's referred to by theologians as the golden chain of salvation. Anybody who starts that process gets to the end of that process. Everybody who is, in other words, everybody who is foreknown by God or foreloved by God in eternity past is subsequently predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It's an unbroken chain. Everybody's included from beginning to end. Rules out Wesley's position and those who adopt a similar uh, take. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5 could also be brought to bear in some other passages, which we won't look at right now. So, that's one theory, and it's a bad one. The second one is much more reasonable, and is plausible, and could be uh, uh, a reasonable 
uh, understanding of it. And that is that uh, this passage, the writer is describing people who have come into direct contact with the means of saving and sanctifying grace employed within the visible church. So the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. Uh, they've come into contact with those means of grace. And that's what's being described here. So those that espouse this view believe that once enlightened, uh, the writer's phrase there, once enlightened, is a reference to the sacrament of baptism. Now, there are reasons for this, which I won't go into here, but they, they, they make a case that, um, that it can be, uh, that it's an allusion to the sacrament of baptism. Uh, these folks also think that tasting of the heavenly gift, you probably know what this might be, what they think is alluded, they think it's an allusion to the Lord's Supper. Tasting of the heavenly gift, means of grace. They, uh, believe that tasting the goodness of the Word of God corresponds which, with exposure to the act of preaching, which is what you're under experiencing right now. And they consider the powers of the age to come, that phrase to be a reference to the signs and wonders that accompanied the preaching of the gospel during the apostolic age of the first century that are no longer operative, but that were operative in that day and age. And so, <clears throat> this is a reasonable, um, a reasonable um, interpretation. I don't think it's quite the best one, but I'll get to that in just a second. Um, so the the language <clears throat> used by these folks, the second group here, who think it's an expo- exposure to the means of grace, it certainly suggests <clears throat> that those about whom the writer is speaking have come into close contact with the means of grace. So I won't dispute that point. Um, I think that's obvious. Obviously, these folks are in the visible church, or were in the visible church, who have since fallen away, but they were. And so they were exposed to the means of grace in the visible church. But I think this third interpretation that I'm going to give you now is um, my, it's the one I, excuse me, favor. And that is that the writer of the Hebrews is alluding to the experience of the Israelites, uh, the Old Testament Israelites following their exodus from Egypt, and that he is using that experience of the Israelites to warn his first century readers. So let me explain. So remember who is the writer's original audience is. The book is entitled Hebrews. The writer's original audience were Jewish Christians at least professing Christians among uh, who had previously been Jewish. Um, and they were Jewish Christians. Uh, and so they were these Jewish Christians were very familiar with the Old Testament. They were raised hearing about it and hearing it read and uh, discussed. Uh, and they would be people, his, his uh, the writer's readers, original readers, would have been people who would readily connect with um, and appreciate allusions to the experience of their forefathers in uh, in Canaan and, and, in, and in Egypt and so on. And I think what the writer is doing here is the writer uh, of Hebrews is doing what he frequently does, and that is he draws from Old Testament texts and he alludes to Old Testament events in his sermon here. This is a sermon. Um, and so he's doing it again now. He's, he is alluding to the experience of Israel of old. And what the writer is saying is this, I think. He's saying, once 
this person who has fallen away, when he was, when it says he was once had been enlightened, probably refers uh, to the pillar of light that guided the Israelites through the wilderness. I think that's a reasonable supposition. I can't guarantee it, but I think it's reasonable. The writer is not saying that these apostates that he's referring to literally see uh, saw a pillar of fire, no. Uh, but that they had experienced what the pillar of fire signified in the wilderness, and that pillar of fire signified God's blessed presence among them. Okay? That's what the pillar was. It was a reminder to the Israelites, God is right here with us. We can see the manifestation of his glory when we look up at the pillar of, uh, of fire. So that would be what that, that references to. The, the phrase, tasted of the heavenly gift, it, is if this if I'm right is a reference to the manna uh, that the Israelites ate in the wilderness, signifying the spiritual nourishment that these apostates had received from the means of grace, including the Lord's Supper, which they had been exposed to when they were in the church, but had not had repudiated. Tasting the goodness of the word of God, that phrase would correspond or refers rather to the prophetic word that God spoke through Moses in that day and corresponds to the message of salvation that the apostates that he's referring to uh, heard as a result of their participation in church services and their exposure to the preaching that was there. Um, and then finally, tasted of the powers of the age to come, that phrase would be a reference to the miracles that uh, God performed in order to free the Israelites from Pharaoh's grasp, probably signifying the signs and wonders that accompanied um, the preaching of the gospel during the apostolic age, which again have ceased. But uh, uh, So that would be a reference uh, like the previous uh, theory to the signs and wonders that accompanied uh, the apostles during the first century. So, what would be the author's point? What is the Holy Spirit's point in including this passage and this language in Hebrews chapter 6? Well, he is warning his readers, and he is warning us, the hearers today of this passage preached, that just as the great majority of Israel's, of Israelites who left Egypt failed to enter the promised land, so too it is possible for individuals who claim to be trusting in Christ to experience the manifestations of God's saving power through their involvement with the church and yet ultimately fail to reach heaven's shore. These so-called Christians who will eventually fall away if... uh, uh, you know, these so-called Christians will fail to enter the heavenly Canaan if they fail to do so for the same reason that the Israelites of old failed to enter the earthly Canaan. And that was because of rebellious unbelief that manifested itself in ungodly behavior. This is the very point, by the way, that Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of his Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness comes from unbelief. It is the product of unbelief. So unbelief precedes the lawlessness, but there will be lawlessness where there is unbelief, meaning fundamental uh, uh, damning unbelief is what I'm talking about there. I guess there is no other variety. Anyway, you get the point. Jesus is making that point here uh, in, in, the, in his Sermon on the Mount. And think of a very obvious example of somebody who fit the bill, Judas Iscariot. He preached the gospel. He was sent out to proclaim the gospel and did. And it sounds like he saw, along with the other apostles, converts. And they performed miracles, even. Judas probably did as well, and yet he went to hell for eternity. The son of perdition is his biblical name or title. Folks, the same can happen today. Someone professing to know God, even in this congregation, someone professing to know God can fall away by and only by repudiating Christ, his authority, and uh, one's trust in him as Savior and Lord. Faith of a mustard seed will unite you to Jesus as Savior and Lord. It doesn't have to be a lot of faith. For some people, it's really hard to believe and trust um, at times, and, and doubt enters in at times. But the kernel of faith is still preserved in those individuals if they're elect. But it's the person who just walks away and says, I don't believe that nonsense anymore. And lives, usually it displays itself in their behavior uh, as well. And, and in fact, it does. It's not that we, we some, you, some people may not see it, but it, it always does. That can happen, folks. We must not be those who say, oh, it could never, I could never do such a thing. Unless God is gracious to you, you will. And I will fall away. It's only the grace of God that preserves us and causes us to persevere in faith and obedience, even though at times our faith may be sorely shaken. We must not let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Take heed. The horror of apostasy. Uh, second point. This is in 6, the last uh, portion of that verse. Uh, so the description of the apostate, and then he says, and he has all those blessings and then have fallen away. It says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame.
the writer is making the point that the apostate person has so hardened his heart or her heart by his own deliberate knowing, unbelief, and rebellion against God and Christ that he has reached a stage where it has become utterly impossible for him to be restored to true repentance and saving faith by means of anything other than sovereign intervention. In other words, no human means that might otherwise be used to bring somebody to their senses can bring such a one to his senses. The one who has reached this point has come to a place spiritually where he can no longer be rescued from, if you will, uh, by human intercession or human intervention from the yawning mouth of hell's furnace. He is, at least from a human standpoint, such a one beyond saving, beyond hope. The thought of ever descending into such a spiritual abyss yourself should cause your blood to run cold. But the truth is, it's a place where every last one of us could, and as I said a moment ago, would go, were it not for the continued gracious, sustaining, upholding work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why is it impossible to restore an apostate to repentance? Well, he says, it's, the writer says, because they have in essence re-crucified Jesus and exposed him to public shame as a result of their rank unbelief and rebellion against God. Rick Phillips, again, quoting from him, puts it this way, to repudiate Christ is in effect to take up hammer and nails and beat them into his hands and feet, to make common cause with those who crucified him, to mock him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered, he saved others, he cannot save himself. When he says, since they again crucified to themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. This indicates that they are re-crucifying Christ to their own spiritual detriment by doing so, obviously. An understatement, if ever there was one. So does this mean it is impossible even for God to restore someone who has fallen away to repentance and faith? Is it impossible for God to restore such a one? Many of us read the text that way. Go, well, God, even God can't do anything about it. Is that true? That's not true. All apostates, not all apostates, are necessarily reprobates. I don't think. And here's why. A reprobate is somebody who is, ele- uh, is predestined unto hell, for those of you that haven't heard that term. But not all those who have turned their back on Christ are necessarily reprobates. 
Perhaps most of them, but not necessarily all of them. And this is why, because the word, the Greek word for impossible denotes a lack of power, not a lack of will. Do you hear that? It denotes a lack of power or ability, not a lack of will. We are told elsewhere that nothing is impossible with God. God has the ability, the power, to transform an apostate Christian into a convert. The issue is one of will for God, not one of power. And who are we to say that God may not, to show as a a particularly wonderful trophy of his grace, to make somebody who actually has apostatized a believer before he takes his last breath? Nothing's impossible with God. Thirdly, and finally, we've looked at the description of apostasy and the horror of apostasy. But now in verses 7 and 8 of our passage, the evidence of apostasy. How do we identify someone who may have committed this horrible sin of apostasy? Well, the writer uses an agricultural metaphor to help us answer this question. Verses 7 and 8, I'll read it again. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, that ground receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Basically what the writer and the Holy Spirit speaking through the writer is saying is something like this. How do you know if somebody's committed apostasy? Look at his behavior. Look at his behavior. What is he producing? Now we aren't, we aren't infallible judges of someone's behavior, uh, but we can, oftentimes we can get it right. Not that we're supposed to act as someone's judge, but sometimes judgment is necessary, um, especially in the church. Um, but no, look at his behavior. In the same way that the kind of vegetation a given plot of soil produces is indicative of the quality, or lack thereof, of that soil in which those crops are planted, so too the behavior that springs from an individual's heart is indicative of the spiritual condition of his heart. Jesus again makes the same point in the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 7, 18 through 20 of that same chapter, chapter 7 of Matthew, says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, meaning normally, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so then you will know them by their fruits. He's saying the same thing here, right of the Hebrews is. 
So the bottom line is, you can tell most of the time. Again, we aren't perfect discerners of what's going on, but we can get a pretty good idea by looking uh, at the way somebody lives, as to whether or not their profession to be a Christian uh, is lively or not, shall I say. Apostates look like apostates. And again, we are not supposed to go around being other people's judges. We are not to do that. The church leaders in particular are required at times to judge fruit. We're fruit inspectors. We aren't heart inspectors. Uh, We're fruit inspectors. Um, And sometimes you might need to be a fruit inspector, especially if you're a dad and you're looking at... uh, uh, some boy that your daughter's interested in, you got to be a fruit inspector at that point. I'm going to be. <clears throat> anyway, sorry, girls. Um, <clears throat> how should you use this knowledge? How should you apply this knowledge? Well, first, you should use it to look at yourself, to evaluate the condition of your own soul. Paul talks about this in first, or Second Corinthians, rather, when he says there in chapter 13, verse 5, test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Examine yourselves. Look at your own life. This warning, by the way, this book, this sermon, Hebrews, is written to professing Christians. It's not written to unbelievers, it's written to professing Christians. And he is. this warning is addressed to those Christians, like ourselves. We need to remember that we all have the innate, that is the inborn, or inconceived, I should probably say, capacity to apostatize. And we will do that unless Jesus is present in us and prevents it by his spirit. So it is prudent for us to regularly, especially when we are becoming callous about some behavior that we know is dishonoring to God or some thought or some attitude in our lives and we just don't care. We start getting callous about sin and we start giving in regularly to certain temptations and just kind of, oh, what's the use? Christians aren't supposed to do that. Say, well, what's the use? I might as well just enjoy myself. No. If you find yourself tending in that direction with respect to temptation or sin, you better do some self-examining quick. And see if that hardness of your, that hardening attitude towards the Lord and his will for you is indicative of a heart that doesn't actually believe at all. Or, hopefully, it will be just a reminder to you, I've got to get, i got to get, i got to get over this. i got to, i got to, I need help. I need God's help. I need the church's help. I, I need to stop hardening my heart. I need to, you know, retain what faith I have uh, and not allow it to, continue to be further eroded by the world, the flesh, or the devil.
But a second way you can apply this is you can use this knowledge that people in the church can fall away as a way of looking out for your brother or sister in Christ for their well-being. We're told over in Galatians chapter 6, and this applies particularly to church leaders, um, but it doesn't just apply to church leaders. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. But notice, restore such a one who is caught in a trespass. And by the way, hardness of heart is a trespass, even if it doesn't manifest itself in outward gross behavior. If somebody is just callous and you can sense from their tone of voice or their words that uh, they just are hardening their hearts and just are cold towards the things of God, uh, though they're still showing up at church or they're still reading their Bible even, you can say, brother or sister, this is, I'm really concerned. This, this, this attitude doesn't, doesn't speak well of your spiritual state right now. And you don't want to keep going in this direction. It's not just the job of the elders. We all got to look out for one another. And not just in the walls here, but beyond the walls of this church. What are some concluding things we can learn from this sobering passage? A couple things. First of all, understanding and intellectually affirming the gospel is not enough to save you. The demons believe and shudder. Justification or salvation, but I increasingly want to call it justification, is by faith alone. But justifying faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by a life of increasing, perhaps slowly, perhaps in fits and starts, but gradually increasing Christ-likeness. If there's no change, there's no justifying faith, it seems to me. Someone who is savingly united to Christ by faith will give evidence of being so, to some degree at least. There are people perhaps here today who have never put their trust in Christ or even professed to have put their trust in Christ. You're not an apostate because you've never professed to put your trust in Christ. But I promise you, your predicament is just as bad as the apostate because you're on the road to hell. And you will surely make it there if you don't repent and flee to Christ as your Savior and your Lord. You must trust Christ. There is no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to avoid hell. And there is no other way to a life of, of life and blessedness and peace and joy. Not freedom from pain, but a life that is meaningful and purposeful and worth living without Christ. The world's trinkets are not going to do it for you.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the reminder of the dangers of coasting, the dangers of being presumptuous about some experience we had in the past as indicative that